What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Exploring how we can master ourselves by looking at how authors and experts say it is possible. With your host, Shashiti Basu. Welcome to Season 3, Episode 102 of How to Be With Me, Shashiti as your timid presenter, guiding you through life's tricky topics and skills by reading through the best books out there. This is the penultimate episode of the season, if you can believe it. We've made it this far. Whether it's your first Christmas without someone, or they haven't been around for years, or if you're feeling a different kind of intense loss, you might find that your grief is more intense throughout the holiday season. Maybe you're bursting into tears when you least expect it. Perhaps you feel angry at people around you, or maybe you're feeling anxious, worrying about how you'll feel or how you'll get through. These feelings are all normal and you're not on your own. Being mindful of the different stages of grief impacting others, such as denial, anger or acceptance, may also help to acknowledge the perspectives of others during sensitive discussions relating to lost loved ones. Before we get started, there is a trigger warning with this episode, as it will reference suicide, and we'll provide some resources at the end for anyone feeling a little bit fragile. So how do we stop denying grief? Here is Mary Lamia, PhD, who is a Psychology Today grief columnist, teaching at college level and also in private practice. She sadly lost her husband the same week she published her book about grief in 2022. We don't necessarily need to face our grief by revisiting emotionally distressing memories. Sometimes distracting ourselves or suppressing memories may be healthier than sitting with them or delving into them. It's important to recognize that what activates grief is recalling positive emotional memories and images, not so much the negative ones. We grieve because we remember when things were different, especially instances where joy was shared. Rather than facing grief or recalling our pain, we must separate fond remembrances from the sadness of loss. Attempting to distinguish these as different experiences is essential to minimizing grief's anguish. As many writers and researchers have noted, death ends the boundary of a life. It does not end a relationship. Our first book is from Tiffany Philippou, who is a writer and podcaster, whose work has been published in Stylist, Refinery29, Sifted, The Eye Paper, and The Startup. She co-hosts the Work, Life, and Happiness podcast, Is This Working?, and it's been described by The Guardian as increasingly vital. The podcast was a number one show in the UK Apple career charts and is frequently in the top three in the business charts. 
Philippou also writes a weekly newsletter about love, loss, finding meaning and some of the messier sides of life called the TIFF Weekly. She previously spent over 10 years working in leadership roles in startups, and she also works as a consultant and recruiter for startups. We talked about her book, Totally Fine, and Other Lies I've Told Myself, What My Decade in Grief Taught Me About Life. It was great speaking with her, hence here's a snippet of our chat, but find the full interview on www.howtobe247.com on the YouTube channel. It's a very personal story. So Totally Fine is a memoir about how my boyfriend Richard died by suicide when we were both 20-year-old university students. And it follows my grief for a decade. I don't really hold back and I, and I tell it all. So I did find that extremely helpful in a way because to, just to kind of really just put everything out on the table, but also incredibly terrifying. So one of the main themes of what I talk about in my book is shame. And shame is obviously relevant in the sense that when it comes to suicide and suicide bereavement, there's a huge amount of shame. It's still not talked about that much, even though my experience of this was 13 years ago now. So I was very much motivated by almost to expose myself, or I think I said once, like sacrifice myself on the altar of dignity for a wider cause. And that cause is just to help anyone who is bere- has been bereaved by suicide, perhaps feel less like I did at the time. Perhaps it's just helpful to hear someone else's story. But of course, it was terrifying um, and difficult, but very healing as well to go through that process of really staring in the face, the biggest fears and the things I was most afraid to take a look at from my past. So Brené Brown is a hero of mine, talks a lot about shame. And I discovered her work pretty late on with regards to when I was on that 10-year grief journey that, that, that is tracked in the book. But she very much talks about, so guilt might be, I did a bad thing, whereas shame is, I'm a bad person. And shame really fosters in silence and it builds its power in what's not said. And anything in life, what gets left unsaid builds in power. And we so often try and suppress and pretend things are fine, which is why the book's called Totally Fine. And that makes it worse because it festers the more you push it down. So for me, it was important to, well, the biggest cure for that shame is very much to talk about it and tell everyone that story and to break it out into the open as well. So that's why I wanted to kind of do that in a very public public setting. I've spoken to a lot of people who've had experience of grief. Is there something about not feeling legitimate in your pain or did that relate? So the magnitude of how you experience it and react to it, it doesn't feel legitimate. So I was young, we'd only been in each other's lives for two and a bit years. I was his girlfriend. I wasn't, you know, it wasn't wife or family member and so on and so forth. So there's something about not feeling legitimate. And again, I think that is about shame as well, right? Like I don't deserve, why am I reacting like this? But I've spoken to loads of people who've, yeah, who've, who've experienced grief in, with all sorts of connections and people and circumstances, not necessarily suicide, who really, who felt that as well. And there's something, it's very lonely that I think. My whole writing career really launched with the first chapter of the book and from that, once I started writing it, it was a very long process from, I went to a memoir class pretty much on a whim with no intention to write this story. And it came out almost, it was obviously bursting to come out. So it was on a whim. And then because I started doing that and working on that over for a few years, it takes so long to go through that process, get an agent, deal, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I began, yeah, like basically blogging a bit more, joining Substack, writing, pitching. So it really unlocked writing for me. 
there's also something I think as well about when you have an experience that's so dark and difficult, it builds your own desire to find meaning and purpose in life and also builds on your empathy around other people's experiences as well. So it's completely, if this hadn't happened to me, I would be a different person who'd be doing something different right now. And it's quite a scary, strange thought. I certainly am learning a lot more about trauma now than I was when I was writing the book. So I think what is in the book it is very much like a narrative, how it's told. It's not sort of academic or scientific or brings in external. I almost wanted it to read a bit like a novel and for something to be almost enjoyable or, you know, people sometimes feel uncomfortable saying that, oh, I really enjoyed reading it because it's such an intense subject matter. But I felt like if it wasn't that, then people might not want to read it because there is so much, you know, like, do you want to read a book about suicide? I mean, that's a scary prospect for people, which I completely understand. So I think there was, now I'm learning more about trauma and body and how it holds it. Absolutely, there's a huge amount of trauma in there that I'm only seeing in retrospect. And when I speak to people like you who are asking me about it, and there's gaps in my memory as well. So um, people, my editor, or I think the the Times reviewed it and they said, oh, we wanted more of Richard, who was my boyfriend who had died. We wanted more of the relationship. We want more. We want more. And I didn't have that more to that much more to give. And I think that is related to trauma. And then I felt, you know, I felt bad about that. So I obviously stirred up lots of difficult feelings because I just couldn't really fully give as much as maybe people would like. And so, yeah, I think, but I'm learning more about trauma now. I felt a lot of blame for what happened. I felt very judged by people around me because we lived together. We spent every day together. How could she not have known? And part of the exercise of the book is to kind of look for warning signs that this was going to happen. And even though they came out, in the book a bit when I went back and did analysis at the time it still felt like a massive shock and I was so young it was also a different era since 2008 the world was not talking about mental health or mental illness or anything along those lines at that time and so yeah I felt I think self-punishment and exane it's that shame thing it's like I'm not worthy I'm a bad person you know this you know all these sorts of things and it was yeah as you said I kind of tried to numb and I, I, it felt like I wasn't really living yeah I was just like numbing instead of confronting what I was actually feeling it's become a lot more manageable yes certainly it definitely comes back a lot and perhaps maybe when suffering about other aspects it's something that always kind of I come back to and it pops up when not necessarily when you least expect it but it does come back quite a lot but it's certainly particularly after confronting it writing the book speaking about it like it's such a joy to say his name and to speak about him because one of the other things when you asked before about what's so difficult about grief is how like awkward people are about it and they're scared to talk to you about it when actually you want to talk about the person or you want to talk about your experience and you can feel people being uncomfortable around you which as humans we're socialized to fit into the pack so it's actually very painful for us to pick up on that rejection mentally so yeah it's very much more peacefully sitting there within me which is a lovely place to be in and that comes, I think, from really sitting with it. Yeah, I definitely find his birthday is always an important day of reflection. And I'm getting more and more involved in certain suicide organizations and charities. And his mum, for example, there was a day where you acknowledge someone who's died by suicide by lighting a candle in the window. And so I did that. And so I'm certainly becoming much more engaged and owning it a bit more. Like this is part of me. This is part of my experience. But it's still very, very sad to do that as well and to kind of think about what could have been or how life might have been different. 
Philippou's story is a deeply personal and courageous journey of self-discovery. It begins with a life-altering phone call in 2008 that shattered her world. Her boyfriend's tragic suicide led her to a decade of silence, carrying the weight of shame and grief. Her narrative intersects with Brené Brown's research on shame and vulnerability, highlighting the importance of breaking the silence surrounding our darkest experiences. Brown defines shame as the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Something we've experienced, done or failed to do, makes us unworthy of connection. She says, speaking shame is important because its survival depends on being undetected. Her decision to join a memoir writing course marked the turning point. Instead of penning the expected startup memoir, she unveiled the painful truth about her past. Through this process, Philippou found a profound connection between her own struggles and those of her late boyfriend, Richard. Her story transcends her personal journey delving into societal expectations, the millennial generation's challenges, and the impact of failure in a world fueled by social media. In a world where suicide is a pressing concern, particularly among young adults, she hopes her story can serve as a beacon that things can get better. Suicide is the biggest killer of men under the age of 45 in the UK. By the end of today, 11 men in England and Wales may have died by suicide. She says the statistics are screaming at us, but we're not listening. This also goes for university students. Shame is the cruelest of the human emotions, and the further we push it down, the larger it grows. The shame we carry when we fail to reach society's expectations of us is holding us back from a life worth living. Her call to confront shame, share our stories and inspire change resonates deeply. Whether you're grappling with loss, uncertainty or personal demons, her message reminds us that by speaking our shame, we can unlock the path to true living. This is a story for anyone seeking solace, understanding and the courage to break their own silence. When Philippou first heard her boyfriend Richard ended up in hospital, she told people she felt fine, which she says ended up becoming the tone of her grief over the next decade. Seven days later, the life support machines were turned off and he tragically died. Her mother bought a book about the five stages of grief and left it on the kitchen table. It was a reminder that her pain fitted neatly into a formula, which frustrated her. The cause of Richard's death obviously hovered above the funeral service, unspoken. Some of his school friends had begun disconnecting from Philippou and would soon delete her as a friend on Facebook, while her own close friends formed a guard around her. There are such mixed reactions to grief under these circumstances. She had met Richard at Bristol University and developed an intensely close relationship with him. However, after he received a letter saying he had failed his first year, he changed. He became increasingly depressed and she felt trapped and was turning to drink. She says that she began losing control of her own emotions and was getting angry with him. Over the months, she felt like she was absorbing his sadness and throwing it back up as a bile of stress, to the point she developed irritable bowel syndrome and she passed out one day because of stress. Philippou says that at the time, words such as anxiety and depression were never uttered. There were extreme conditions which sat in the same camp as heroin addiction and alcoholism, and didn't happen to people like them. They were stressed or hungover and were often tired and sometimes sad, and that was totally normal for them. They fell into a destructive pattern where neither of them attended lectures, and she thought he had his situation under control. It was indeed a dark and toxic place. Her own issues blinded her from the path he was going down. 
As Richard was slipping away from her, she became increasingly obsessed with her own image. This is a habit, she says, it she notices in herself today. As her self-esteem tumbles, she feels her vanity rises. While she wasn't picking up on the warning signs that were coming from him, her body was trying to get her attention that something was wrong. She also talks about how Richard tried to get help from the GP, but was told to come back in a few weeks if he still felt the same, a common problem with mental health care. After the funeral, the presence of good friends was so consistently effortless for her that she forgot that other people existed who couldn't handle her grief. In the wake of Richard's tragic death, sleep became elusive for her. She longed for respite from the torment of his absence, but even when she did manage to sleep, nightmares of him haunted her. Her exhaustion became a new normal. Her daily life struggled to adapt to a world without him, and she targeted a rage at her sister at the time. She realised her comparison to breaking up with a boyfriend wasn't so different. Heartbreak and grief are cruel emotional cousins, she says. She found solace in working with children, innocent of her past and always questioning, and she attempted to get away on holiday. Unfortunately, she had to go back to uni, becoming re-traumatised, seeing the same people. She says she developed a pattern of drinking, blurting out what happened and then ending up having sex with the person, who in the end didn't really care. There is this close connection between sex and death as well. She was also struggling with her own studies and was volatile and destructive. Following his death, Philippou grappled with feelings of his abandonment and rejection. This stigma surrounding her grief left her feeling unwanted, leading her to focus on her appearance as a way to compensate. She used makeup like a mask, hoping to conceal the emotional turmoil she carried within. The author sought refuge in a small, safe world reminiscent of a third year in college with her boyfriend and housemate Zach. She cherished the mundane routines and simple joys of life with her friends. However, tragedy disrupted this sanctuary once more, shattering the fragile sense of stability she had built. Her housemate Finn suddenly died. His heart had stopped and he was found lying dead in his room all day. Facing the reality of mortality was a stark contrast to the impact of suicide. At just 20 years old, she wasn't prepared to confront such a profound lesson. Philippou observed a stark contrast in the public response to Finn's death compared to her boyfriend's suicide. The outpouring of grief and ongoing support for Finn highlighted the different reactions to these two tragedies. She also talks about how death is seen as hierarchical, where some people are deserving of more sympathy than others, and by this point she had been changed forever by these events. After uni, she managed to set up the popular Facebook group Secret London, which had thousands join it within the first two weeks and it gave her a sense of purpose again after such a long time. Businesses were interested and soon after they were investing in the project to build a website which was featured in TechCrunch. At this point, she broke up with Zach. Despite her love for him, she wished to distance herself from her past and the brokenness associated with it. She sought to create a new identity, hiding her inner turmoil by seeking admiration from others. The author's addiction to work took a toll on her health and appearance, her diet consisted of unhealthy choices, and her body suffered from the consequences. She became gaunt, suffered gun disease, and endured physical and emotional struggles. However, she continued to hide behind her work to avoid her past. She grappled with regret, questioning why she hadn't taken the threats to her relationship seriously like with Zack and Richard. She felt careless and believed the shame within her was justified as the rejection from these men reinforced her unworthiness of love and belonging. 
She told Zach at one point she hated him after he forced her into a toxic situation. But she didn't hate him. She wished to convey that the pain of their breakup mirrored the loss and grief from Richard's death. She grappled with heartbreak, shame, grief and rejection, recognising their interconnectedness. Contrary to the expected narrative of suppressing grief through excessive partying, Philippou found moments of happiness and calm amid the chaos. While some relationships were fleeting, her true friends remained by her side during those wild years, and she doesn't regret that chapter of her life. She also sought excitement and distraction by engaging in dramatic relationships, including one with a colleague. These entanglements provided a temporary escape from her unfulfilled life and the profound sadness she carried within, serving as a means of avoidance. The entrepreneur grappled with feelings of abandonment and shame as she lay beside her colleague Frances, who was unresponsive to her. Her panic intensified and she was consumed by self-hatred, replaying past mistakes and rejections. The experience brought back memories of Richard's departure, leading her to empathise with his decision, making for a nightmarish and sickening time. Before Frances, Philippou had a pattern of pursuing unavailable men, a realisation she'd only fully grasped in therapy later. She often found herself involved with men who were in relationships, and she would desire them even more after they effortlessly ended things with her. Frances was also uncomfortable with her grief surrounding Richard, and as a result she never mentioned it again. When she eventually broke up with Frances, she quit the London office as well and moved to New York. But thoughts of Richard were never far behind, and she stopped turning up for work again. In order to stay, she had to find a job quickly for her visa, and she ended up in a much lower-paid job found by her ex-boyfriend, Zach. Taking a job at the same company as him created a complicated web connecting Philippou to her past and her desire to both connect with and escape from it. She sensed that healing her wounds required facing her past, but this insight led to a destructive and regrettable career move in joining the PR agency. As a result, she ended up in a cycle of debt and spending. Due to relying on takeaways because she hadn't adjusted to the lifestyle, she said her body was also spiralling out of control, and she began seeing an older man who taught her an important life lesson. We're all walking through life carrying pain, something that hadn't occurred to her before then. Her own experience of grief had destroyed a part of her empathy, she believed. It had hurt so much that she couldn't imagine how anyone could have experienced anything like it. She says she could have held hands with others and shared in our suffering, but instead she suppressed it all, feared any feelings at all and presumed no one had any problems apart from herself. And then suddenly, this older man, Bill, vanished, never to return to New York, and Philippou began experiencing heart palpitations for the first time. Her love for New York took a similar trajectory as her love for Richard. After a period of bliss, it came to a violent and visceral ending. She moved back to London to a new startup job, only to have the same feelings of anxiety bubble to the surface. She realised beneath it all was emptiness and sadness. The author's teenage transformation from what she calls the fat kid to a more socially acceptable weight revealed the power of thinness in society. However, her obsession with clean eating wasn't solely about achieving thinness. It became a means to control her mind. She believed in food intolerances despite her irritable bowel syndrome, influenced by the clean eating movement, which later revealed many proponents with eating disorders. It coincided with the fit-not-thin fad as well. 
Her friends all noticed her spiralling out of control and even offered to pay for therapy. Eventually, she made it into the office when she realised her past was haunting her. She explained to the therapist that her grief felt as if she was carrying a shameful secret, an infectious disease that was bubbling close to the surface and could expose her at any moment, something that if you got too close to, anyone might catch. She says the truth of her resistance to therapy was simple. She was frightened that any success she had in her life had come from her desire to fill the hole inside herself with validation from others. Her ambition came from grief. Hence, Philippou was scared that if ambition was taken away from her, she would no longer be special. But it also meant she wanted it to be fixed. As a result, the therapy breathed life back into Richard's ghost. She accepted that she would never be totally fine, and perhaps that was the most comforting thought of them all. Going to therapy created conversations about Richard that she had always been fearful of, but opening herself to the dead opened her up to the living. Philippou also compared the feeling of losing her job to her experience of grief, acknowledging that nothing could ever match the pain of Richard's death. Despite the humiliation and shame associated with job loss, she found resilience in knowing that no matter how bad things got, they wouldn't compare to the worst thing that happened, which was losing Richard. Until then, she hadn't thought that perhaps her position was aspirational. This time off had been a gift. Losing her job wasn't a failure. The real failure is to stop being free. From that day, she chose living over existing. In a heartfelt message she wishes she could have given at Richard's funeral, Philippou expresses her profound grief and regret. She longs for their joyful moments together, regrets not understanding his pain, and apologises for not preventing his tragedy. She recalls their love and how it taught her about grief's magnitude reflecting love's depth. She vows to keep his memory alive by helping others struggling with shame and sharing her story. The author acknowledges that love is what truly matters, pledging to advocate for change and shine a light on the importance of love in our lives. Our final book is from veteran writer, the late Joan Didion, whose works spanned a wide range of genres and formats, including essays, screenplays and journalism. Her 2005 book, the Year of Magical Thinking, Lessons of Loss, looks at how she coped with her daughter's life-threatening illness and losing her husband. Unfortunately, shortly after the book was published, her daughter also died, but she chose not to revise the book. She later wrote Blue Nights about her passing. Here she is reading an extract from her book. Well, I think the hardest thing was finishing it, because for as long as I was writing it, I was in touch with him in some way, you know, we all know that if we are to live ourselves, there comes a time when we must relinquish our dead. Let them go, keep them dead. Let go of them in the water. Let them become the photograph on the table. Knowing this does not make it any easier to let go of them in the water. I did not want a year after either of them died to end. I knew that as the second year began and days passed, certain things would happen. My image of them at the moment of death would become something that happened in another year. My sense of John and Quintana themselves, John and Quintana alive, would become more remote softened, 
transmuted into whatever best served my life without them. In fact, this is already happening. For once in your life, just let it go. On December 30th, 2003, Didion and her husband, John Gregory Dunn, were facing the potential loss of their daughter, Quintana, who was critically ill in the hospital. The couple had just celebrated Quintana's wedding five months earlier, and her dire condition weighed heavily on them. In the midst of an ordinary dinner conversation, John suffered a sudden cardiac arrest, leaving Didion in disbelief. This unexpected event further added to the emotional turmoil surrounding their family as they navigated the uncertainty of Quintana's health and John's life-threatening crisis simultaneously. After her husband's sudden death, Didion was in shock and crucial information was initially withheld. She reconstructed the events of that night through primary source documents, hospital records and her memories. Paramedics tried to revive John at their apartment but failed. Didion then followed him to the hospital where she was kept waiting, filling out paperwork. In retrospect, she realised that John had been dead upon arrival, a truth hidden behind bureaucratic procedures. She uncovered the grim reality in a physician's record, marked with the letters DOA, revealing that John had been dead on arrival at the hospital, forever changing her life. Didier then had to face the surreal task of filling out hospital forms for her husband, who had been unresponsive for nearly an hour. Despite the absurdity, it provides her with a sense of agency and hope. She believes in the possibility of saving John's life and contemplates transferring him to a hospital she's more familiar with. However, obviously her hopes were dashed when a social worker arrived and delivered the disheartening news, leaving Didion in a state of uncertainty. She was then confronted with a dual crisis. Not only did she have to come to terms with her loss, but she also had to deal with her daughter, Quintana's critical condition in another hospital. Quintana was comatose and seriously ill. After several weeks, Quintana finally woke up, unaware of her father's passing. Didion had to break the news to her three times before it fully registered. Quintana's own health struggles persisted, including a pulmonary embolism, leading to John's funeral being postponed. The funeral eventually took place at St. John the Divine, a cathedral with significant personal and cinematic connections to the couple's life. Didion reflects on the complex network of memories that connect significant moments in her life, especially those shared with John. Their marriage was deeply intertwined, spending nearly all their time together, working from home. After John's death, the urge to share life's details with him remained, even though he was gone. The loss of simple gestures like holding hands during a flight symbolised a profound grief and emptiness that remained in his absence. Her memories and the intricate web of her life with John served as a testament to the depth of their relationship and the lasting impact of his loss. Didion experienced the vortex effect of grief, where even mundane triggers led to painful memories. She attempted to avoid these triggers and focus on unrelated thoughts but found that everything eventually circled back to her grief. An example was a wallpaper board at a hospital which led her to reminisce about her past, almost pulling her into the vortex of sadness. Didion's struggle to escape this cycle reflects the profound impact of grief on memory and daily life. In the late 1960s, she found herself in Honolulu, far from the Vietnam War she yearned to cover. She was asked to write a seemingly trivial column for Life magazine, while male reporters were sent to the war zone. 
her decision to work for life became a pivotal point in her life with her husband John. In hindsight, she wondered what might have happened if she had followed John's advice and taken a different path. She contemplated the possibility that her choices contributed to John's death, a manifestation of her magical thinking amid grief. Her emotional state clouded her rational thinking, leading to a sense of guilt in her mourning. Didion then began the process of clearing his belongings from their closet, a ritual suggested by friends. She started with outdoor clothing, which held little emotional significance. Later, when trying to clear his shoes, she was gripped by a delusion that he would need them to return home. She also engaged in magical thinking, believing she could have prevented or could still reverse his death. This prevented her from processing her loss effectively, and her grief persisted for a year. Although not fully resolved, these thoughts lost some power by the time she wrote her memoir, allowing for limited closure. As a writer and avid reader, she found an unexpected source of closure. She received his autopsy report and learned that he had severe stenosis in his left anterior descending artery, a hereditary heart condition with a grim nickname, the Widowmaker. This revelation helped her understand that John had inherited a defective heart, absolving her of any guilt or responsibility for his death. While the loss remained painful, knowing the uncontrollable nature of his condition allowed Didion to find some peace and closure in her grief. She then delved into the extensive reading on grief, encompassing literature, poetry, psychological theories and medical works. She found solace in the latter which validated her experiences and confirmed the typical symptoms of grief. Shock, numbness and denial. She also discovered the concept of normal and pathological grief, realising that her persistent grief might stem from an unusual dependency on John and the circumstantial factors of Quintana's illness and the delayed funeral, deepening her emotional turmoil. The looming possibility of losing her daughter after her husband's death added another layer of distress to Didion's already overwhelming grief. Didion reflects on a traumatic time in her life when her daughter Quintana fell and was hospitalised in California. She had a history of closely monitoring medical care. But now, as Quintana needed brain surgery, she faced the realisation that some situations were beyond her control. Her story highlights her struggle to cope with the uncertainty and her realisation that she couldn't always protect her loved ones. In Didion's story, there's no fairy tale ending. Her husband's death didn't lead to a new life filled with love for someone else as in the movies. Their marriage had complexities beyond love, and his death meant the loss of their relationship, entangled with memories and shared habits. Over time, she realises that while these memories fade, they never truly disappear. This process of gradual loss, although inevitable, feels like another form of loss. It reminds her of her grandfather's lessons as a geologist. Everything changes, and change implies destruction. She understands that to move forward, she must say goodbye and let go, a process her husband would support. So to sum up, Totally Fine by Philippou aims to challenge the shame and stigma surrounding suicide, sharing her story to encourage others to focus on what truly matters in life. Her aim is to inspire people to lead more joyful and purposeful lives, offering solace and enjoyment through her narrative. In the year of magical thinking, Didion faced a series of personal tragedies between 2003 and 2004, the death of her husband and her daughter's severe health issues. These experiences brought her profound anguish and valuable lessons about loss, powerlessness and the ever-changing nature of life. Grief is my constant companion. It changes shape, 
and it transforms into different states depending on the environment. Sometimes we have to let the air out and the light in for something to mutate. What do you think? How do you move past denial with grief? Let us know. If you or anyone you know needs to speak to someone, you can phone the Samaritans in the UK at 116123. For more information, visit the Samaritans website at www.samaritans.org. If you're in the US, the National Suicide Prevention Hotline is 1-800-273-8255. CALM, or the Campaign Against Living Miserably, is a leading movement against suicide. You can find the website at www.thecalmzone.net. Please join in on the conversation by following at How to Be 24 7 on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook and subscribe to the podcast, which can be found via www.howtobe247.com. Check out all our exclusive unseen bonus material from every single interview or for the price of a coffee on both Spotify and Patreon under the name Behind the Scenes Exclusives from the How to Be Books podcast. All the latest ones are on Spotify, while more than 30 exclusives are on Patreon. We've also launched a shop on Patreon where you can buy one-off exclusives. Sign up to be part of the conversation and the movement. Please do leave a review if you found this helpful and you want to also be featured. Remember to check out the website as well. We got to see top fantasy book talk writer R.F. Kwong live at the British Library as part of the Fantasy Realms series. We also reviewed the very important book, A Day in the Life of Abid Salama, by journalist Nathan Thrall, which highlights the treatment of Palestinians during a tragic accident. We also looked at the art of regifting books and whether people will be doing so this Christmas. And we finally rounded up the best non-fiction books of the year, so check that out. Please check out Zencaster. We do all our interviews with it, and it's for free. If you've ever thought about podcasting before and realised that you need a lot of different tools and services, those days are over. With Zencaster's all-in-one podcasting platform, you can create your podcast all in one place and distribute to Spotify, Apple, and other major destinations. Go to zencaster.com forward slash pricing and use my code HOWTOBEBOOKS and you'll get 30% off your first month of any Zencaster paid plan. I want you to have the same easy experiences I do for all my podcasting and content needs. It's time to share your story. Have a safe and loving holiday period wherever you are. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.